Hello and welcome to another episode of The Lowdown. Today I am thrilled to be joined by Tim Keach, co-founder of Market Insights, a data-focused football consultancy working with modern leadership and recruitment groups from all over the world and sporting directors. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks, Conor. Very pleased to be on. Um, Tim, I suppose, could you take us into your past life before taking a plunge to get involved within the footballing world? Yes. Um, so despite um, kind of working in football now, I didn't have a footballing background at all. Um, so I studied economics at university, um, went into working with a financial technology company, a barcoding company. And then a, kind of in my mid-20s, I set up my own consultancy, uh, working basically in efficiency in the public sector. So I'd go to councils and the NHS and other organisations and help them uh, do, yeah, find ways to to make money go further. Um, and I never really had any intentions or aspirations of working in football. It was only really a few years ago um, where I had a gap in contract. So I'd finished a contract in the NHS, so I was supposed to start another one, but there was a delay and I had three months with no work lined up. So I thought, well, I, I love football. My kids have both started school, so I had days free to myself. And I, I thought I'd actually just spend this time writing some of my thoughts down about how I saw football, how I saw clubs operating and how I thought things could be done better. Um, thought I'd be like screaming into the void like most people are when they write blogs and no one would really be interested. But um, actually, it gained a lot of traction, really. I got some nice messages from people working within football and agencies and other people on the kind of peripheries of football. And I was invited down to a conference at Opta, um, the Opta Pro Forum, uh, just as like a, a member of the fans community or whatever. And uh, But there I met some people from clubs and again from agencies and was offered a bit of consultancy work, which I thought initially I'll just do this to, to fill these couple of months gap. Um, and finished it off really with like a big project of if I were to work in football, this is the type of thing I'd want to do. And uh, I'd met some people through Twitter uh, who I really liked their work. And we, we shared a view of how football was organized and the, the data and the other things that you could use to help make better decisions. And we ended up just doing a, a speculative piece of work, which, yeah, we never intended really to go anywhere. We, we kind of jokingly said oh if anyone wants to pay us any money we'll just we'll set up a company and split it never really thinking anything would happen um yeah and that was that was before football <laughs> and uh, i suppose it's a weird but wonderful world in fact that the same principles which were apparent to you three years ago you know having this idea in your head of putting out a blog post on football and what they can do better within the industry same principles still apply today. There is really remit for anyone to title blog posts such as yourself and put the work out there to the masses and see how they respond. Three years now, in 2021, three years later, do you still find the same gaps you saw in football, albeit two, three years ago? Do they still exist today? I think they do. I think there's clubs who get it and they're moving rapidly in the direction of looking for structure and efficiency in their operations and how they can go about getting the right coaches the right players the right kind of support staff in place or with a shared vision of football but so many clubs it's not the case and you only have to look at 
examples with kind of owners who have bought into clubs and pumped loads of money in very quickly and not actually seen any improvement and then kind of they stop spending and you get financial issues you get players wanting to leave you get bad recruitment choices being made and I do think it is a bit strange that yeah over the last few years when there's been this explosion of information available to clubs a lot of clubs still ignore it they'll still go for the uh the tried and trusted same few managers will rotate around the clubs and there's normally a reason for that. They're normally people are good managers. I, d- I don't think from the outside you can ever say, oh, don't hire that person. It's always a case of do they align with what you want to do? And if your your chairman's saying we want to play a specific style of football, we want to recruit using intelligent and due diligence for all our signings, and then they hire a manager who doesn't play anything like that and then are signing 30-year-olds on twice the wages of a normal player, then you've got to consider that there is still room to learn. Um, and I think there's, it's been good for us in that the clubs who want to move in that direction are, are now looking in kind of four people writing about it and the companies who operate like us have actually managed to pick up work. But I still think there's a, a huge and expanding market of clubs who, who could do with services. Of course. And, you know, traditionally speaking, strategic thinking and football aren't two words which go hand in hand in the same sentence, Tim. But am I right to assume that this stems from a consensus, perhaps, of these ownership groups becoming involved in football? They certainly know what to think, but they don't know how, if you get what I'm saying. And Mm. they're resorting to terrific data, independent data consultancy firms such as yourself to provide that added nose and insight. Why is this the case in 2021? I think that... (laughs) In football, everyone everyone is trying to sell you a solution. Um, if you speak to an agent, they've always got the best player in the world on their books that no one else has discovered. So there's it's really hard to separate people out from people who will look after your interests and will help you build up a sustainable business and those who are trying to sell you something that is a product or service, yes, which is what the rest of us are selling, but they're really after a quick buck and they don't care whether it succeeds or not because as soon as that contract is signed, it's it's kind of easy money for them. So I think with the uh, ownership groups, particularly the American ones, they have come in with this view that there are inefficiencies in the sport to be exploited. So you, you look at some of these groups that have had success, Red Bull being probably my favourite example of someone who's come in and disrupted things. They've identified where the the advantages were, which to me is like having a consistent coaching approach, having a multiple club structure where you can move players around to the best place for that player to develop, capture the value through transfers. So if a player moves from one club you own to another club you own, you're capturing all that value for the player and then you can sell them at like their peak value. All these type of um, issues have been there to be exploited, but it's taken, I think it's probably taken outside and it's taken capital investment across multiple clubs to really capture the value. And even now I'm surprised that it isn't a more popular thing to do. So yeah, there's definitely a growing interest. And I think the people who are most interested in it are normally American groups who have have seen these inefficiencies. And I suppose briefly you mentioned their sustainability and in one way, not saying, of course, it's not a great thing at all whatsoever, COVID, 
But was COVID and the failing of the European Super League perhaps a blessing in disguise for a large proportion of these football clubs who were, it was only perhaps then that essentially the unsustainability of their franchises were laid bare directly in front of them? I think I think perhaps it has. Um, it certainly caused a lot of people to talk about sustainability. Um, I think from just from working in the industry now, a lot of that talk, certainly in terms of wage restraint and all that, seems to have gone out the window. <laughs> Rather, I think there'll be surprisingly high salaries offered to players, certainly within the UK this summer. Um, with the TV deals in France having caused issues we thought maybe people would step back and say well maybe we don't need to be outbidding everybody else for these players maybe maybe if you're a Barcelona and you're 600 million euros whatever it is in debt you don't need to be paying five times the going rate for a midfielder people will want to join you anyway you don't need to be the the biggest bidding uh person I say that as a not wishing to cast any aspersions on Barcelona but uh I just think there's there's a an opportunity there for for the, the biggest clubs the super league clubs to really say who's actually our competition do we need to be do we need to be paying 250,000 pounds a week because these players want to play for us anyway and it's only really us we're bidding against so it's obviously it's a free market for players and the best players will always attract the highest salaries but if you're looking at it from the point of view of running a sustainable club I do think sometimes the difference between that player you've got to have and the player who's maybe a tiny bit less valued, valued isn't that much on the pitch. And I think if you're if you're talking like the cream cream of the cream of players, it's only really your Messi's and that kind of one step above everybody else player who's worth probably splashing the extra money on. I just think a lot of the time clubs have getting themselves into a frenzy bidding for players that there's probably alternative players on the market available. So yeah, the, the talk has been of sustainability, but whether that's actually going to be seen through, I'm not sure. I think it might well end up with being, we'll see some high profile clubs in financial trouble. Um, and those who've got the money will just see it as an opportunity to spend even more. Uh, I'm a bit cynical about how much restraint there's actually going to be in the wider market. Exactly. And I think you refer to the Red Bull approach there. And two teams which do it to very much a lesser extent in the Premier League are both Southampton and Leicester City. And I think it's very much you harp back to Barcelona, for example, paying five times over the average rate for, I take it, Merlin Pjanic you're referring to there. <laughs> but um, it's very much a flawed economic system when you look at the Garnish, you know, it's like the Garnish is eating the steak. When you see, today, for example, Bubakar Samara, fantastic midfielder, who's just one league mm. on one league. He's going to sign for Leicester for £22 million. Great value. Yeah. But we all know to T, he's more than likely going to be successful in the Premier League with Leicester. And within the next 18 to 24 months, we'll secure a big move for big money elsewhere. But my point being, Tim, that the likes of Chelsea, the likes of Man City, Barcelona, PSG can wait now. They can see if Sumeria can cut it at the top level of the Premier League or the Champions League. I mean, in football, we've had this problem for nigh on all of its existence, certainly since the TV deals back in the 1990s. I mean, how more long do you think this is going to last? Because I don't, I see it very, 
this season's obviously an anomaly with COVID, but the likes of Leicester City's triumph for this season, the likes of what Sporting Lisbon have done in Portugal, Lille and Ligon, surely are anomalies in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I think with with the kind of medium-sized clubs showing how you can pick up talent, develop it, and go through to a point where you're actually challenging for trophies with with a more restrained budget. I think probably the, the larger clubs will look at it and think, as you say, we can use Leicester City as our, our test bed for whether Sumari is a good player. Maybe they they look at that and think that they could actually learn from it. And this is where your multi-club approach is really something you can use because if you are if you're a Barcelona and you, you've part you've got a, a secondary club somewhere else in the the world you buy Samaria with that club. When they've reached the point you buy them, you transfer, you, you retain that value. So the say Samaria's a success at uh, Leicester and they spend £80 million to buy him. They could have had him for £20 million. So you've got a £60 million profit is sitting there that goes to, to Leicester or Sporting or whoever's signing and developing these players. People will look at the market of clubs and they'll see that Sanetien or a club of that stature is available on the market for around 50 million euro and runs pretty sustainably. There's no huge annual deficit. So I think maybe with some of the traditional clubs, like Barcelona being a really good example, that might not sit well with the supporters. It might not be something they would like to see their club doing, um, which is where you see these kind of franchise clubs, as people call them, moving into the market and actually saying, well, we don't care. <laughs> we'll, we'll ignore our fans. We don't have that same kind of social standing that Barcelona does. We're Man City. Yes, we've got a nice local fan base, but we don't. We don't really see ourselves as being like particularly fiercely Manchester-only club. We are a global football franchise, and we'll be picking up clubs everywhere, and we'll be able to sign those players and put them into our our network of feeder clubs. And I think it's just yeah the case that clubs will have to learn strategies to cope with it. And it will be the case that the biggest clubs will probably always have that extra revenue on top that cannot be touched by Leicester. Like I I did some research yesterday. And if you look at the annual wage spending of like the top six clubs in the Premier League, as well as their revenues, there's a massive gap even now between them and the challenging pack. It's like a £140 million a year just on wages gap between a Leicester City and a top six regular club. Um, So they have that huge built-in financial advantage, the the global fan bases, all that type of things. Um, And I think there is a limit to what a challenging club can do. And that's where the strategy thing we talked about earlier comes back into it, where if you're Leicester, you can maximise your chances by being really smart on recruitment, hiring the best coaches, getting the best kind of coaching staff around that. So not just Brendan Rogers, but like the whole support team and the infrastructure of the club, the training facilities, the youth system. Maximise all that, run it as efficiently as possible. And you might occasionally win the odd cup <laughs> or challenge them for a top four space. I don't think revenue-wise, as you say, if Samari does well, someone will buy him. So you're always going to have that that huge gap in revenues that is hard to bridge. 
which is why strategy again comes into it. So, so what can a mid-table Premier League club do? You can maximise everything, but you'll probably still lose out. So then you start having to look, where can you get players where no one else is scouting? How can you get players early in their career and progress them to the point and then join Leicester when they're they're ready to join and have bought them for a few million early in their career? And it's all that type of um, strategic thinking that I think is missing from a lot of clubs. And I think the reason for that is the payback period on strategy is so long. And it's also not attractive to people in football because if you're the manager of a club and you've got a, what, 18 month average lifespan in the job, it's really hard to say, actually, no, don't give me the money to buy an extra striker. I will forego that bit of budget. It will go into a project to set up an African youth academy. And in 10 years time, we'll start to see the benefits of that because he'll be in another job. He'll have been sacked after 18 months because he didn't buy a striker. And that's where you need the ownership level of the club and the sporting directors to have that 10-year view. Um, and that's something I think that we certainly push to all the clients that we work with is, it, it might not seem like it because in football, it's such a churn of week-by-week week results, but it is like an infinite game, as the, the phrase goes at the moment. It, you don't just win the next game. It's like you want to build up capacity to win forever. And uh, so, yes, I think clever clubs can get around it, but I still think the uh, the gap in revenues limits what you can do unless you try something different. Moreover, I mean, you speak about a number of things there, one of which I want to touch upon, Tim, is the huge disparity in wage expenditure between the Premier League clubs. One club which we've seen this season, which has taken a bigger picture, but has enjoyed, albeit short-term success, in the championship has been Barnsley. And they've surely upset the apple cart in terms of having the second lowest wage expenditure in the championship, yet having a massive, great season, achieving a semi-final place in the playoffs. What has been so unique about Billy Bean's approach and Pacific Media's group's approach within Barnsley? And do you think such an approach would work well and could be replicated in the Premier League? I think Barnsley probably stand out because they have such a um, high intensity way of playing. And being someone who's worked in the FL now for a couple of years, um, there's there's always there are people would challenge whether they actually have the second uh, lowest wage bill. One of one of our clients would certainly uh, challenge that. <laughs> um, I know Barnsley have been saying it, but I think there's probably probably similar. There's quite a few teams with quite a low budget within that league and huge disparities again. What Barnsley have done is had a consistent club wide approach, which they've had going for a couple of years now, from Stendhal through to Struber, and now being carried on again. So. They, they had an established model. They've hired coaches who have played that model. They've recruited energetic players who fit that system. And again, a lot of people in football will say there's not actually a huge difference between how Barnsley play and how Rotherham play. It's it's very similar style of football. One has been more successful than the other this year. But And actually, that some of our stats within our company, we looked at the last kind of half of last season and Barnsley are actually hitting promotion playoff level metrics in quite a few few of the uh, areas of the game so we had them flagged this year as a team who was going to do well um, and yeah it's that it's that high intensity and that consistency across all the Pacific media group 
teams they play in a certain way they I see that uh Stendhal's actually just joined their French club Nancy so he's gone back and they're churning those coaches again within they've got a really good one called Blessing at Ostend who is exactly the same style of coach so they, they're building up their their coaches they're building up their networks of players because we haven't seen a lot of player trading yet so the actual model yes I think the model is definitely replicable it could go into the Premier League level what I'd also say is the style Barnsley play, I'm not sure will translate as well to the top level without a, a significant increase. You try that against Man City, you're not going to see the ball. You can't get away with a 50% completion, pass completion rate in the Premier League. Um, so, yeah, it would have to be tweaked, I think, the, the approach. But, yeah, the consistency of coaching hires, of player recruitment, all great. And that is definitely the model we would push for any club wanting to work um, with a multi-club approach. It doesn't have to be that style, but a style across your group and coaches to match. And I suppose, zooming out then a bit, uh, Tim, to the work you do with these ownership groups, I mean, you did post an intriguing article back in March regarding the 12 steps to a successful club takeover. What does the exact process look like from due diligence to acquisition when you're helping these ownership groups? And I suppose, where do the most common pitfalls occur? Okay, so with, with the ownership groups, we've, we work with a couple um, at various different steps of it. So club acquisition is always the, the first thing. So there'd normally be a process where clubs are looked at and often lots and lots of clubs have been looked at. Um, and there's different stages because... It's a very murky world, club transfers. It's not like you go to a website and there's nicely listed information with this is our current level of debt, this is our wage bill. We're talking weeks locked in a room looking through contracts in often in different languages because clubs are often looking at global networks. So you need a really good team of people around you to actually look into them. I was talking to someone the other day who's recently acquired a few clubs and they were saying that at every single stage of every single process of due diligence they found stuff that has been surprising <laughs> not not in the uh, even probably the owners didn't know that they'd contracted to pay certain amounts of money to certain people at certain times <laughs> that were hidden in the uh, the depths of a, a 20 page 20th page clause of a contract or something so you really need people who know what they're looking at um and again there's normally a reason clubs are for sale it's because they've run out of money or they need someone to take it to that extra step or there might be a, a big bill coming up. So, yes, clubs will be on the market and there will be lots of uh, interest from investors. There's always interest from investors, but there's also a lot of tyre kickers, people who go along and say, I'd love to buy a football club. Well, wouldn't we all? But uh, it gets to the point where show me the money has to happen and uh, it's really difficult. You see Derby County recently, great club, great potential, lots of interest, but... It's got debts, it's got contracts, it's got a, a squad that needs refreshing. There's there's uh, loans with other people. There's a ground ownership issue. To actually get to a point where you want to hand over significant sums of money for this type of thing, you really need to understand all of that. And that's a huge investment up front. Someone's got to spend probably literally millions of pounds on actually finding out everything about that, that deal. And you don't want to do too many of those. And everyone knows what those kind of messy clubs are. There's Bordeaux in France is another great example. Potential is huge, but it's probably the debt and the issues probably 
preclude a sale unless you've got really deep pockets. And if you have, there's probably better deals on the market. So yeah, that process of really finding out what you're buying is the first step. Um, the fun bits kind of come after that. So once you've actually acquired the clubs and you're confident, you know what the, the situation is on the ground, then I think it's a case of, um, and this is what we're doing with some people at the moment, is kind of looking into structuring that. So you've got several clubs, several markets, all starting from different points. They probably all play a different style of football. They've got different age profiles, different youth systems. You want to look at that, find out exactly how you can get kind of continuity across those clubs. So it might be getting systems in place and there's some really good systems on the market which enable you to share information centrally. Um, there's Soccer Lab is one and Itapro is another. They're really good systems that I really like both of them. Um, they're kind of like management, content management systems for football clubs. I recommend that as a starting point. You can kind of start collating your information. Everyone can see it in one place. You've got the ability then to assess the squads and really kind of do gap analysis. Where do we want to be in a few years' time? What have we got now? So we would recommend like, how do you want to play? That's always the starting point. How how do you envisage your clubs playing? And that's what the Barnsley owners have done really well. They've got that defined style. So you choose your style, you go into the market and you look for coaches who play that style and of the right age profile and the right temperament because this is like a transformational project for these clubs a lot of managers tick a box we play this style but did they actually implement it or have they carried on someone else's work so you really want people who who are good coaches and can get players to go with them on that journey of of playing that style of football you want to sort out your recruitment so you're you're scouting and finding players who fill the gaps in those squads and then you want to be yeah kind of getting everything done on time and not panicking about short-term results because any anytime you change anything there's going to be disruption and I think short-term results short-term thinking is really difficult and we've seen it with clients like nothing is relentless as football there's a game every three or four days particularly this season and you get to a point where thinking about something that is going to happen in the summer seems so long away and then you get there and you're actually in the summer and you're like whoa we've got a We've got to recruit players. We start again in six weeks. We've got to have these plans in place. So, yeah, what we tend to do is kind of be those people who can step back from the day to day and kind of say, run a project for them, basically, like we'll help you find coaching staff or we'll help you get the systems in place or we'll help you on the player recruitment side of things and uh, kind of carry that work on in the background. So, yeah, just get, getting all that coordinated is the, the first steps. And I always talk about aligning the, the four sets of people. So that's the owners. They've got to be realistic. And this is the thing that we kind of hammer home with the ownership groups is everyone else is working on the same things you're working on. You're not going to be the smartest guys in the room all the time. There's always other groups doing pretty much the same as you, whatever league you're in. You might have a bit of first mover advantage. You might have spotted some things they haven't, but a lot of the time you're competing against people doing very similar projects. Um, so be realistic. If you've got a mid-table budget, aim to be the best people with that type of budget but if someone in that league has got five times your turnover and your revenues you might narrow that gap you might occasionally be that much cleverer than them and that more agile in the way you approach things but it's not realistic to always be better than people who have got loads more money than you and can hire the best players and the best coaches on the market so 
you can find ways to disrupt what they do and be smarter but yeah be realistic then the, the kind of the footballing support people so that's your sporting directors your heads of recruitment all those people they have to share a vision with the ownership about what football should look like and what how you're going to get to the promised land of whatever you want to do then you've got your actual coaches so the ones who work with the players they've got to agree <laughs> and uh with the owners and the directors of football and sporting people about what football should look like and how it should be coached because any of that is misaligned then it's not going to work because you're going to be judging different ideas of what football should look like then you've got the playing staff and those have to be able to play the style you've recruited so if Barnsley take over a club and all the players are slow 35 year olds it's not going to work whatever they do best coach best director of football great ownership if the players are completely unsuited it's never going to work so you're going to transition your squad to play that style but that can take three years that can take five years at premier league level because you've got huge contracts with millions and millions of pounds invested in them and it's really hard to say don't worry about the results in the short term because you lose six games in a row you're going to be getting eggs thrown at your car as you drive down the street and booed and the easiest thing then is to say rip it all up sack the manager get proven experienced premier league legend in <laughs> they can do the last 20 games of the season and we'll try and stay up and then probably give them a two-year contract and then regret it six months later when you're back down the bottom <laughs> so it's it's all this kind of getting everything in place get it set up at the beginning agree get the people in who agree with each other and yes you always want people who challenge it or push it but you need to have consensus over what good football is and how you should go around achieving it or you'll just be arguing all the time so yeah those those kind of four departments you align across like I, I think I said like 12 steps that you would look at to do uh, working through each of those to get everything in place I think it's a it's a good benchmark I don't pretend it's the only way or it's the necessarily the best way but I think it's the way that we are looking at as as being a, a sensible approach for most people looking in this market of course and I think we've been presented possibly with one of the most interesting case studies in recent years with uh, Inter Milan the news Antonio Conte has just recently departed the club. I mean, between Antonio Conte, the sporting director and president, um, Peter Zhang, there just seems to be a misalignment of thoughts, beliefs and actions right across the board. I mean, if you're an Inter Milan fan now, would you be saying to yourself, was the juice really worth the squeeze in terms of achieving <laughs> your first Serie A title in 11 years? But you look now, Conte has left the club and maybe like the cons outweigh the pros in terms of you have a drastically aging squad profile there with the likes of Alexis Sanchez, Ashley Young on huge wages in an era now of financial fair play. You have somebody like Ashraf Hakimi who's committed to a five, six year deal. He reportedly wants out of the club now. I mean, even touching a nerve closer to Johan Herton, Everton <laughs> seems to be apparent between uh, Marcel Brands, Fairhead Mashiri and Carol Ancelotti. I mean, both very interesting case studies in Milan and Everton, although <laughs> at opposite ends of the spectrum. Success. Yeah, I'd say. Uh, <laughs> I think most Evertonians would probably go for <laughs> go for a, a title next year. It'd be fine. Um, but yes, it is that that alignment. And again, I, I think I, I've used the, uh, the the phrase like sushi and chocolate cake. They're like 
you can have things that are great on their own. So Carlo Ancelotti, brilliant manager, Marcel Brands, really good sporting director. But if they don't see things exactly the same, you've got that kind of clash of two really good things, but they just they don't sit well together. So, yeah, I think this general approach of of spending money and thinking you can quickly bridge a gap by throwing money at things is it has worked but I think it works if you have infinite money so if you look at Manchester City they first of all they went through the uh, Sinawatra and other owners before they actually had the current owners but even then with the current owners it was like the first thing they do was we've got to buy a star to prove that we're serious so you buy Rob Rubinio or someone like that as kind of like a, a marquee signing or you you think yeah let's get let's get someone everyone's heard of so I can be kind of parade them in the stadium this is how serious we are well that type of investment is fine um if you've got the money that you can effectively write it off after a few years time or you can sustain it and you can bring in player after player after player so it kind of snowballs and you you get to the point where players do take you seriously and they do want to join you so there is some kind of method to the man to sometimes of throwing money at it if you intend to leave the taps on forever and if you're Roman Abramovich in the early days at Chelsea or someone like that you've you've got the ability just to spend 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 with no competition but now now in the Premier League and Serie A and other leagues you're facing quite a few teams who have got infinite money <laughs> and uh, they're, they're happy to spend and you're not really standing out by trying to brute force it all you're doing is bidding up for the same players you may have paid 15 million pounds and you're now spending 45 million pounds on them because people know you've got money and uh, you've talked yourself into the fact that you've got to spend to be relevant. Um, I, as, a, as an Evertonian, and particularly one who's kind of invested in this uh, strategic vision, it does kind of make me weep the money we've wasted in the last uh, last probably five or six years. Um, and again, it's that short-term thinking of if we spend money now, we'll get into Europe, we'll become more high-profile, we'll get Champions League money eventually, we'll get more advertising revenue, we'll have more sponsorship, we'll have more partners. And they look at that and they think, yes, this is this is the method to be successful. If we just spend, if we just got an extra striker, if we just got one more attacking midfielder. And before you know it, you've got a bloated squad of ageing players. Uh, you've got probably hundreds of millions of pounds of accumulated debt. And you didn't actually make Europe anyway, because even, as I said earlier, even with all the extra spending, you're still, still like... 140 million a year in wages less than the clubs you're you're challenging so it is really like could you have taken that three or four hundred million pound investment and actually strategically planned to get to a point in 10 years time where you're going to be having the absolute best academy in the world you're going to be having the absolute best scouting network in the world you're going to have a, a network of feeder clubs getting you you players ready for premier league football and you can challenge and you can sustainably sell those who aren't quite good enough to to play for you and that that level of thinking and I've, we've seen it quite a lot with the likes of Inter Milan who have obviously had the success and as you say is it worth it I think on the day of the celebration and the the anticipation of winning the title and that type of thing are memories you can't take away but if your club ends up bankrupt six months later a lot of fans will say well actually I still support them and this is miserable so uh you don't want your club to be closed down, your manager leaving your all your players to be sold. I mean, Lille, great example as well. They've won the title, but with Sumare and others, they, it's really a case of 
is it going to be a fire sale of their assets because of the financial problems? Um, I know they were taken over again, but I don't know how much money or how much debt they were just to clear up. So again, it's a case of you've had the excitement and I don't think fans would ever say no to winning a title. But if the cost of that is that your club will be relegated because they, they are in bankruptcy or points deductions, then yeah, you still will support them the next the next year. So it fans a fans commitment is for life, not just for a title. So it's a I suppose another thing which is prominently important at this present time, Tim, is especially the Brexit changes and the havoc that will wreck on the summer's transfer market and I suppose planning future transfer windows to add. And um, we've seen one solution recently being the emergence of club partnerships. We've seen Brighton and Hibernian, Burnley and a few other teams, I believe, in the UK. Um, we've seen in the past how successful this can be with, for example, the likes of Mets and Generation Foot, one which you allude to the whole time. What is the upside of these club partnerships when contrasted with ownership networks? Yeah, I think there's, so there's partnerships, I would say, and there's networks, as you say. So a partnership is a strategic alignment of two clubs and sometimes money changes hands. So Generation Foot and Mets have a contract and I believe it's like a 10 years at a time deal and they negotiate it. They pay a, a set amount of money, which enables Generation Foot to operate and run a really good academy and challenge at the top of Senegalese football. I believe they were champions last few years. Um so they they have a yeah an agreed amount of money that is paid each year. Um, some of the ownership groups actually have equity in both clubs, so they would they would own either a hundred percent of a club, which is more a network deal, or they might own a strategic investment in a club. So they might take a a twenty five percent stake or something in a in a in a club and have within that stake an agreement that certain things are done. So. It might be a shared approach to coaching. It might be first option on all players from the academy. Um, these are controversial deals and there's often um, rules against them. And there's certainly percentages above which you can't go in certain countries. I know the Netherlands is very anti-shared clubs. And that's where you've had people like Vitesse and Chelsea having their arrangements where effectively it's done on a handshake we'll, we'll lend you some players you play them regularly and it's it's all done on a kind of informal agreement as far as you see from the outside so um yeah i think i think the strategy of doing that is is something we might see more of and i think particularly with the work permits and the belgium situation belgium and portugal the netherlands are the three market and turkey are the four markets where it's quite easy to get a work permit if you hit a certain amount of uh, played minutes outside the top five leagues. Um, so I think if you are an English club and you've got an African player you want to buy, you can say to a Portuguese club, we will uh, we will pay you in some form or another, or you can have the player for free. Um, and that player will play for you for free for a year. And in a year's time, we will take him and he will have a work permit for England. So whether you would have to have contracts or whether it would be done formally or informally, I'm not sure. But I see that as a solution because the GBE work permit criteria in England have thrown a massive kind of hand grenade into the market of, of recruitment. Teams used to be able to shop anywhere in the EU. That was 27 markets effectively you could look in. Any player with an EU passport from within those markets or anywhere else in the world with an EU passport 
could be signed for an English club. Now you're realistically looking for a championship lower end club or below. You've got a tiny market of players you can buy. You've got a few in Europe, quite a few in South America, which I think, again, if the rules don't change in the future, will become an increasingly prominent market because the way the rules are written, loads of players in South America qualify. Um, But yeah, I think those kind of strategic alignments between clubs is a potential solution and one certainly I see clubs going. I know Brighton have got ownership of a club and they're actually doing a very clever thing at the moment, Brighton. So Tony Bloom is the Brighton owner. They also own Royal Union in uh, Belgium. If you are an English player and you're out of contract, so you play for Chelsea and you run out, your contract is over. If Brighton wants to sign you directly, there's a negotiated fee and that goes to tribunal and you can end up paying three or four million pounds for a player. If that player goes to Belgium, you pay a standard set amount of compensation, which is about 250, 300,000 pounds. So if, if Brighton don't sign a player from Chelsea, but instead he goes to the Belgium club, 300,000 pounds, he plays in Belgium. If he becomes good enough to play for Brighton, he can move back, play for Brighton. They've got him. They can buy him from their own club. So they can pay whatever they like because it's going from one pocket to the other. Um, if he's not good enough to play for Brighton, then you've got a English passport holding player who on the market is worth a lot of money because there's so few of them who are good. So if he's good enough to play at championship level, you might sell him for £3 million. So you've got 10 times your money back from a player. So, yeah, I think clubs, English clubs will probably see that happen. There's been at least two transfers so far this summer to that club. Um, and they'll probably get a bit fed up of it and realise they can buy a top flight club in Belgium for £5 million and uh, start doing it themselves. So, yeah, again, if clubs know the rules and have the money to invest, there's lots of potential solutions. They shouldn't ever worry about getting players. Sorry. I suppose, Tim, in terms of just focusing on recruitment, aside from what we've just elaborated upon, what are the common challenges that are becoming more and more apparent for clubs when faced with this summer's market? I think, um, as I said earlier, I think everyone probably assumed the market would collapse because everyone's going to be sensible now. We've COVID has kind of shown us that we're so reliant on fans and income and we're, we are grateful to keep going. Um, but there's football attracts people with lots of money and uh, who want to do it for fun. And by and large, I think individually, quite a few of these owners have probably not suffered too much financially during the uh, the shutdown. Yes, the club revenue has collapsed, but if they were losing three million pounds a year, does it matter if they're losing four million pounds a year instead? So there's been a lot of the the clubs with quite wealthy owners and certainly new investment as well have come into the market, particularly in England, and they're saying, right, I want to buy best players in the league below, and I'll pay whatever. Um, but the problem this summer is because of the work permit situation, you can't shop in other markets. So it's kind of the clubs who might, the top end championship clubs who might have gone, will buy a, a French player or a German player are actually saying, oh, we'll take the best player in League One. And then that team in the uh, bottom half of the championship is actually saying, oh, we can't get that, t- that best player in League One, we'll get the bottom end of League One. And it kind of has shifted everyone's expectations and the market down a bit. And then those few players who are available and out of contract this year, are getting kind of wages they would never have dreamed they'd get this time last year because there's no other choice. So demand and supply, really. It's like you've got 
you say to a someone we want the best striker under 25 with a goal record in this league well there's only probably three of them who are regular goal scorers under 25 in in those divisions so i i, I read people's uh kind of blogs and recommendations for who their club should sign I'm like yep that's the same name everyone has said because he's the only player who ticks those boxes within that division everyone in football knows who they are everyone's bidding for them and their wages have gone from three thousand pounds a week to ten thousand pounds a week because they're the only option available um so it's classic demand and supply um i think wider than the uk i think the uk is a specific case i think if you look within central europe and uh france and germany i think we will see probably a lowering of salary expectations particularly in france um where the tv deals have been such pro such problematic um and some of the biggest clubs are struggling financially and particularly the lower league clubs are, are really struggling the kind of ones on the periphery of relegation from the league i think uh Nimes yesterday said they would be declaring bankruptcy unless they are certain conditions are met so people will automatically be looking up those squads in normal circumstances in the uk and saying who can we take but um they can still do that probably because they were a league one club so the work permits will be generous um but yeah i think it will be a case for your your average belgium club or dutch club or anyone else that they will probably be more sustainable with their recruitment um but they'll also probably be regretting that the uh, the English clubs they used to be able to sell players to for uh, three times the value are uh, unable to shop in their markets anymore. So it might come as a nasty shock that that kind of cash flow dries up. And I suppose as since we spent the whole podcast interview, uh, Tim, speaking about how other clubs and associations should indeed strategize ahead of the impending years. I mean, for yourselves at Market Insights, what is the plan ahead for the future? Um, we, we we love what we do now, which is working with a select number of clubs and helping them on specific projects. And uh, we kind of calculated the other day, I think we've done about 15 club projects since we've been going. And uh, this isn't us saying this is because of us, but of those kind of clubs we work with, it's about a 90% success rate if you measure it by how's the club improved in the following year in terms of their league finish. And what we would say is that's that's not directly because of working with us. It's because the clubs who we work with come to us because they want to embrace kind of strategic thinking and they want to look at how they can get recruitment to work as effectively as it can. Um, what we'd always say is like the clubs make the decisions. It's always the people within the club who sign the players. We just provide them with as much information as we can or if it's coaches, we kind of help them choose the ones who are the closest match to what they they say they want to do. So having that kind of close relationship with a select number of clubs is great. And um, I think what we will end up doing is probably working more with the ownership groups. And that might mean in a year's time, we, we specifically work with one ownership group, helping them across a large number of clubs. And that would probably be the direction I see things going in uh, long term. Um, we'd love to yeah kind of get into that early stage with owners and help them get everything set up because we've we've worked now for quite a few good sized clubs and quite a few tiny clubs to be honest like clubs with part-time players or wages that are kind of yearly what some clubs pay in a week and uh you look at that and you you see that the strategy is the same whether it's a a 50,000 seat a stadium european competitor or whether it's a kind of 1000 people a week club 
you just put the same structures in place with the same, obviously to a lesser degree, because the budgets are completely different. But you say you want to get that defined style, that recruit players to match and coaches to match and and do everything you can on the kind of marginal gain side to go with it. That works really well. And I think probably over the next year, we'll build up even more of a database of the best coaches. I'm having conversations every week now, like I, I spoke to someone yesterday who is now going to be coaching a really big club. Um, and just the fact that it's surreal to me that a year ago, if you'd said to me, oh, you'll have a phone call with someone who's going to be a manager of that club and they'll happily talk to you and take your phone call and say, oh, I, I liked your blog or I read your article or I, I, I like the stuff you put out. It's surreal to me because uh, we're just some idiots off the internet who, uh, who wrote some blogs and, together a few years ago. And now you've got actual kind of people taking our phone calls and speaking to us as equals in some ways. And that, that is still crazy to me. Um, but yeah, if we could work with a new group who were going in and establishing themselves and really kind of get in there from the beginning and help shape their success, that would be the kind of dream to us, I think. Um, so yeah, that's that's the target and we'll keep kind of working hard to make that happen. It's certainly a testament to the great work which yourself, Chris, Andy, all the guys are doing in Market Insights, Tim. But finally, to close, um, I know personally you're a guy who's accustomed to receiving requests from countless individuals who wish to enter the footballing industry, no more so than myself, who I believe was <laughs> less than a year ago, um, yeah. shared blog posts with yourself. I mean, for individuals like me, perhaps, albeit a year ago, or others, if they had just 30 seconds with yourself, and if they were to give you an elevator pitch, what would be some of the things you would hope to hear? I think the thing I, I always say to people is kind of show your thinking because I think like brevity is kind of an earned right. If, if you're talking to someone who's done lots in the game and they say, give you a strong opinion on someone, that's that's based on years of experience. If you're trying to break into an industry, I think you need to show why you're thinking what you're thinking and explain those thoughts. So I always say to people, write stuff down and that's the best way or, or podcasts or anything like that. But but let people see that you're actually deeply thinking about the issues and also looking to do things a bit differently. We see a lot of the time in football scatter plots of, of two metrics and highlight the ones in the top right as being good and the, the bottom left as rubbish. But there's there's so much more nuance to, to data and that side of the game. You've really got to show that, OK, choose me one of those players is in the bottom left quadrant and tell me why they shouldn't be there. We, we do work for clubs all the time where we're saying the data looks rubbish, but we've watched this player and we really like him. And here's why we think the data is rubbish. He's in a poor team. He's young. He doesn't get any passes. He's, he's playing in front of a really selfish winger and there's a fullback who has to cover back. But we think he's got the ability to do this. So or this manager got sacked. But here's why he actually came into that club. He changed this. Three players got injured. Uh, the the club went bankrupt. There's always a reason. You've got to you've got to look at the narrative beyond the simple fact. So yeah, show your thinking is definitely my uh, advice to everyone. Fantastic. And um, Tim, once more, a huge thanks for coming on. Where's best to catch you guys? So you guys on social media. So Twitter is a great place to find us. If you search Market Insights, you'll you'll find our, our main company website, and we're all linked off there. Or marketinsights.com is our website, and that's normally got. A blog on there every few weeks, probably explaining our thinking about football that time. I definitely recommend that to anybody who wishes to explore football in a more, from a more strategic lens. But um, as discussed, Tim, huge thanks for coming on. Might get you on again in the future. 
and keep up. Thanks very much. Great. Thanks, Connor. I really enjoyed it.